Voice. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 16. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica. I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. Our guest this episode is David Ellison, recognized around the world as the co-founder, bassist, and rhythmic backbone of the iconic heavy metal institution known as Megadeth. After growing up on a farm in Minnesota, which partly inspired the lyrics he wrote for the classic Megadeth song, Foreclosure of a Dream, Elveson relocated to Los Angeles at the tender age of 18 to pursue his dreams as a musician. The Musicians Institute in Hollywood, where Elveson planned to attend, helped him find an apartment nearby. As fate would have it, that apartment was just below an apartment occupied by one Dave Mustaine, lead guitarist and co-songwriter recently dismissed from a band called Metallica. As the story goes, Mustaine heard Ellison playing the bass line from Van Halen's Running with the Devil and yelled at him to knock it off. Before long, the two were friends and Mustaine invited Ellison to join the band he was forming, which became Megadeth, beginning one of hard rock and metal's most celebrated and enduring partnerships. Megadeth has sold close to 40 million albums around the world and racked up multiple Grammy nominations, winning their first for their most recent album, Dystopia. Part of the legendary Big Four of thrash metal alongside Slayer, Anthrax, and of course Metallica, Megadeth boasts a diverse catalog that includes genre landmark Peace Sells But Who's Buying, speed metal masterpiece Rust in Peace, crossover Gargantuan Countdown to Extinction, which debuted at number two on the Billboard charts, back when you had to sell a bunch of records to do that, and Cryptic Writings, which produced multiple hit singles at Active Rock Radio. The band's VH1 Behind the Music special documented the struggles with drugs and alcohol that led to Elveson getting sober in the early 90s. He's remained strong and confident in his recovery ever since. And he goes into even greater detail on his memoir, My Life with Death, which features a foreword by Alice Cooper. Megadeth has toured with metal legends like Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, and Aerosmith. As I've mentioned several times on this podcast, Peace Sells was the album that got me into metal. My first metal show was Dio and Megadeth at Market Square Arena in 1988. I went specifically to see Megadeth, followed by a Megadeth headlining show the same year, which had Warlock and Sanctuary in support. Sanctuary, of course, featuring one of my favorite singers and future friends, the late World Day. Much as they had helped the career of Sanctuary, Megadeth took Stonehipple Pilots, Korn, and Fear Factory out as opening acts as each of those bands were getting going. Alice in Chains opened the Clash of the Titans tour in the U.S., a pre-Big Four outing that featured Megadeth, Anthrax, and Slayer. David was there in Megadeth at their very first show, on their demo, and on every album and tour through the group's short-lived disbanding in 2002. He obtained a bachelor's degree in business and marketing, worked in the industry behind the scenes, and released his first book, Making Music Your Business, A Guide for Young Musicians, with a well-received YouTube series, David Ellison's Rock Shop, and accompanying mobile app. He also issued a book of lyrics and poetry dubbed Unsung. Ellison, of course, was welcomed back into the Megadeth fold in time for the Rust in Peace 20th Anniversary Live Album and Tour, the Big Four shows, and the accompanying box set. He's part of Metal Allegiance, as well as Altitudes and Attitudes, his project with Frank Bello of Anthrax. In the past several months, he's been very active with the Ellison Coffee Company, which sells the Roast in Peace blend alongside Skid Row's Slave to the Grind, as well as the EMP label group, which recently took over the reactivated Combat Records. This year, the band celebrates 35 years of Megadeth, with all sorts of fan-centric festivities centered around each of their 15 studio albums, which makes it a perfect time to have David Ellison, co-founder and bassist of Megadeth, on Speak and Destroy. <laughs> So yeah, I am 15 episodes deep into the Speak and Destroy podcast at this point. This will be episode 16. 
cool. And I got to say, out of those 15, easily 10 of them, I've mentioned that Megadeth was the band that got me into metal. Okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a podcast about all things Metallica, and yet uh, Megadeth comes up probably once an episode. Sure. Uh, I always tell the story about my, my friend Dave Rogers when I was in seventh grade. I was listening, you know, I had an older brother who had helped me get into Adam and the Ants and Generation X and The Cure, and I was into all this new wave stuff. And I had a buddy who was into like Crocus and Doc and kind of the hair metal stuff. You know, I, he didn't really get any heavier than Maiden. And he bought Peace Cells at the mall on cassette by mistake, thinking it was going to be a hair metal record. And was just, you know, absolutely horrified and confused by what he heard. <laughs> and gave me the cassette to get rid of it. Like, Well, we did kind of have hair metal photos on the back. <laughs> he may, that may have maybe, been maybe what fooled him. Maybe we led him to believe it was a different... <laughs> you think the front cover might tell a different story. Though, <laughs> he saw, yeah, he saw <laughs> some... Uh, maybe he saw some <laughs> teased hairs in there somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, he gave it to me almost sort of as a novelty of like, here, you want this thing? It's insane. Like, you know, get ready to... Yeah melt your mind in a bad way and right. and needless to say as i'm living proof here all these years later that it was a life like a literal lightning bolt you know life-changing moment yeah. that people talk about and it was down the rabbit hole from there and i at my local newsstand there was an issue of cream presents thrash metal magazine and it had dave mustaine on the cover and i went hey that's that guy from that band i mean it was literally the only metal band i'd ever heard mm -hmm. um and that's that guy from that band, and I bought it, and a writer named Don Kay, who's now a buddy of mine, uh, had an article in there called The 20 Greatest Thrash Metal Albums of All Time. And what's funny about that is to think that you could make a list like that all the way back then, but on the flip side, I want to say this was 1986, um, we pretty much had like almost all of them already. <laughs> you know, like, the, like the list was pretty good, you know, it had... Rain and Blood, it had Peace Cells, it had Master of Puppets. Um, and of course, I would argue that, you know, a few years later, obviously, we had Rest in Peace and so on. We're talking about just, you know, thrash as a singular sort of movement. So anyway, people that listen right. to this podcast have already heard this story. Um, but it's uh, all that much more unique because now we have David Ellison, founding member of Megadeth. 35 years of Megadeth on the Speaking to Story podcast. So I, just, I couldn't be more thrilled. And... Uh, you know, you were obviously right up there on the on the wish list when I conceived of this whole thing. So cool. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, you know, longtime fans of you and your band will be familiar with your story. That, like myself, you were a Midwest transplant to the West Coast. And uh, if you've seen the Megadeth behind the music, you know the classic story of uh, you living in the same uh, apartment building as Mr. Mustaine. And shortly after his dismissal from Metallica, him uh, hearing you practicing your bass. <laughs> And telling you to mm -hmm. knock it off. So I think we're all pretty familiar with that story. As it relates to Metallica, however, which is something I don't think I've ever heard you talk about 35 years ago, 35 years of Megadeth. What was your understanding of Metallica and uh, Slayer and, and, you know, who Dave Mustaine was and sort of the whole movement as it was? emerging you know being this kid from minnesota who was into van halen and kiss and a lot of the hard rock stuff you know coming out here to attend the musicians institute and live your rock star dreams what, what sort of familiarity did you have and what was your entry point to uh, you know a scene that you of course would become such an architect of honestly had never heard of him i <laughs> knew nothing about him um and it's funny that you know in some ways you know we're all kind of a branch off the family tree of metallica 
in some way, shape or form, you know, and um, it's amazing how far and wide those tentacles have reached, you know, um, you know, Jason, you know, Flotsam and Jetsam's a, a branch now because of Jason Newstead. Mm-hmm. Uh, Megadeth is because of Dave Mustaine's affiliation to Metallica. Slayer uh, is because of Kerry King's affiliation it, to Megadeth. Ex- exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and Anthrax, maybe just for no other reason than, you know, the Metallica guys met Anthrax when they first moved to New York to get their deal with Johnny Z, and they just became buddies, you know. Um, so, yeah, no, so to your question, no, never heard of them. Um, and keep in mind, I grew up on a farm, you know, down by the Iowa border uh, back in those days. Uh, the only way that I had really heard of any music was by way of usually the big rock magazines like Circus, Hit Parader, Rock Scene. Um, you know, if, if uh, we mean bands would sometimes play about an hour and a half away over in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, but that, that, that was considered a tertiary, kind of a third tier market. Mm-hmm. And these were big bands. I mean, Cheap Trick. Um, you know, cheap trick after I want you to want me after live at Budokan, you know, <laughs> um, rush after, you know, moving pictures. I mean, they'd already bands had had huge success and then they would play Sioux Falls. So not exactly a, you know, a groundbreaking territory for music. Um, you know, usually I would hear of things when I would drive up to Minneapolis about three hours away, I'd start to listen to KQ 92 was one of the kind of tastemaker radio stations up there and they would play. You know things that were things that were happening in the in that day. You know, um, but the music I was into often didn't even hit the airwaves. You know, and I remember going to see Iron Maiden, Scorpions, and Girls School. I mean, it's not like there was Maiden tunes on the radio. Uh, it was more like Thirty Eight Special, and um, you know, maybe you know Ted Nugent and Axe, and maybe an ACDC song or something. You know, so it was I was pretty sheltered. I mean. I like a lot of metalheads like you, like the story you just told with P- the Peace Cells album. You know, I got into records uh, by my bandmates and the bands that I had, you know, down in Jackson, Minnesota. Um, guitar player friend of mine, Jerry, brought in, you know, I, the, you know, Live at Hammersmith by Motorhead, Ace of Spades, the first two Iron Maiden records, started uh, Venom. Um, it's how I heard about Diamond Head. Um, drummer buddy of mine and my band a uh, year or so prior to that introduced me to like Scorpions, Love Drive, uh, Black Sabbath. I really got introduced. I mean, I, you know, I played Paranoid, you know, in a cover band I had when I was, you know, 14, 15 years old. But, you know, I really. Which, which is great of, knowing that years later, Megadeth would cover Paranoid. Yeah, we would cover it. Exactly. <laughs> and that's why, you know, it's funny. I kept suggesting, go, man, we should really just cover Paranoid for this. <laughs> simple it's the universal song like if you've never even heard of black sabbath you've probably heard paranoid you know yeah and, and it's almost so obvious that other bands probably didn't think to claim it totally yeah. well <laughs> even us we went around the horn we we tried like every black sabbath song ever until we finally at the very end dave started just playing no 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 and then we jumped in and played it and i mean we cut it we cut that song and only a take or two, you know, which yeah. is why at the end Nick mentioned where, where he stuff. yells at Nick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nick he Nick, legitimately Nick. did not. He just kept playing, and you can hear it because in the final, it's funny. In the final verse, he's over on the ride symbol, which is con- which is where you would be for the chorus. Mm-hmm. So I remember as we're recording, going, "Oh boy, Nick's on the ride. He thinks we're in the chorus. We're still in the final verse. Oh no, this isn't going to end well." And sure enough, you know, we stop, but uh, but Nick. Nick, you know, you hear the yeah, you hear so screaming great. at him through the through the studio mic into his headphones. I mean, that was a legitimate mistake. 
Not to digress, but some of Nick Menz's greatest contributions to Megadeth were his mistakes. You know, he would, he'd start playing, a, you know, David started playing a riff and Nick would jump in on the, on the upbeat, not the downbeat. And he'd go, dude, you got to be playing it backwards. And Nick would be like, what are you talking about? You know, or Nick would play, he'd go for a fill and, and, you know, ambitiously go for it, mess it up and make a mistake. And David would go, dude, that was brilliant. What did you just play? And Nick would go, I don't know. It was a mistake. He goes, dude, rewind the tape. You know, we eventually learned to start recording rehearsals, you know, and writing, writing sessions, you know, and we'd go back and we'd listen to it. And oftentimes Dave, Dave would find pearls of musical genius in, in Nick's mistakes, you know, and, and it was, and it was just, we'd sit around and laugh about it, you know, that, 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 you know, that, that, that was some, some of the greatness of Nick Menz's contributions in Megadeth, you know, but. And that's so cool and so important about getting in a room together, you know, versus everything being so perfect and uh, on a grid and, you know, there, there's a balance in there somewhere between the, the sort of modern perfectionism we've achieved and the, the magic that can happen in those in those beautiful mistakes. Well, yeah. And I mean, you know, again, let's let's, you know, go back to your original question here on Metallica, because, you know, the first thing I heard of Metallica was the No Life to Leather demo. And, um, you know, being in the room, I think I, I knocked on Dave's door. And so, so, so we meet Dave, right? We, yeah. you know, everybody knows the story. We meet, we buy beer, we go to his apartment. He tells many stories. <laughs> He's a wonderful storyteller, funny, <laughs> witty. And so he'd tell stories and, you know, just a very captivating rock star kind of guy that Dave is, right? So me and my friend Greg and our other two buddies, Brent and Brad, who had moved out to Minnesota, you know, to LA together, you know, they, they pretty quickly turned around and went home. Me and Greg stayed, me and Greg and Dave start, you know, Dave and Greg hit it off. I mean, Greg really got Dave, you know, cause he was a guitar player. So really, you know, Dave's riffs, you know, when he'd pick up finally, I think, I don't know if it was either that first night or maybe it was the second night that we got together and hung out. Dave picked up his guitar and started playing some riffs. And I mean, there was just such charisma in what he played. You know, he had this really cool way that he does vibrato with, you know, like hitting a, a power chord, which is a one and a five of a chord and, and, and having, you know, a lot of guys do vibrato on single string. Dave would do chord vibrato and it was mm. so cool and very eerie and spooky. And, and I just got it. I mean, I was studying a lot of, you know, obviously Steve Harris, Geddy Lee, some of the, you know, the emerging, you know, real hotshot bass players, stepping out even over into jazz a bit just because the bass players were so good. Not, not really a fan of jazz music, but I, I tried to study from the bass players to bring into metal. Um, and so as I meet Dave, you know, my, I've got kind of got a blank clean slate. I'm 18 years old. I show up in town. This is what I want to do is start a band. And I meet Dave and Dave, you know, pretty quickly, you know, Greg, uh, there's another bass player that Dave is working with named Matt Kisselstein. And, um, and Dave's kind of you know, almost teaching him how to play bass a little bit. I mean, he was a very kind of beginner, well, in, in a beginner intermediate level bass player. And I was you know, pretty advanced in my experience and my chops and stuff. So we sit down and we start playing and, and, um, you know, I, I could understand and, you know, how Dave played and, you know, I eventually moved over to playing with a pick because it just made it more synergistic to, to play, you know, the wrist with, with, a, with a pick. 
I could kind of emulate how Dave was playing because the big part of Dave's guitar style is in his right hand, not mm. obviously lead guitar stuff in the left hand, but but there's a big part of that in the in the in the you know the picking hand. So I think um, I think the right hands of of Hetfield and Mustaine gave us this whole genre of music. Without a doubt, I mean, without a doubt, it's it. And of course, they reference Malcolm Young and Rudolf Schenker, who were you know iconic rhythm guitar predecessors before them. You know that, and you know, look, late seventies, early eighties was all about fretboard gymnastics, and you know, like how shredding and fancy can you be on the fingerboard hand? But the really the the like you just said, the reality of of our genre really lies in that right hand picking technique. Um, so as I, you know, I, I'm with Dave one day, um, and I walk in and I, I literally think he was like doing the dishes or cleaning the apartment or something. Right. <laughs> and, uh, it was in the afternoon windows open and in the background, he's got no life till leather playing on, on the background. Wow. And, um, see, I've never, I've never heard this story. <laughs> this yeah. Is awesome. and, and, yeah. And it was, and it was, I tell you, it was, it was so cool because it had this very dark, heavy, ominous, sound to it um and whereas and 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 in fact when we record when megadeth recorded mechanics which is what the song was called on the no life to leather demo um i copied uh ron mcgovney's bass line which has a simpler kind of riding the 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 pedal tone which is an e while the riff changes in the chorus uh right i'd kind of hold the 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 tonic the e and i really like that and um as we hear the you know new version of that called the four horsemen on the kill em all record you know cliff burton you know he jumps in and, and plays more of the actual notes of the riff and and creates a very different very different sound to it you know like, so well, i gotta stop you and say i love both songs but i had rob flynn on the podcast a few episodes ago and we actually talked about mechanics and four horsemen for a considerable at some considerable length and uh we both agreed that uh four horsemen wins the lyric contest and mm-hmm. mechanics is the better song it's the better <laughs> performance well and it's again, faster. You know, it's more pissed. It's just, uh, it's just got so much me, energy. Again, keep in mind, my reference was so. You know, again, I, this is probably June, right? Of early June of 1983. Uh, by this time, you know, quickly right around this very time, um, you know, Greg, you know, starts really getting, you know, sit, sitting down with Dave, learning songs, if nothing else, just as kind of a friend and uh, excited. We, we, you know, now all of a sudden, I step in and I'm playing bass. Um, so, you know, this, to this point, Dave was kind of kicking around this name, Fallen Angel, and, you know, there was another guitar player and that lived in the apartment building next door that he had, you know, done, you know, Dave was just kind of kicking around trying to figure out musicians to get, you know, to, to whatever. And was Fallen Angel kind of a, a double entendre to the obvious, you know, biblical connotation, but then also the idea of, of Dave being dismissed from Metallica? I don't know. I, you'd have to ask That's kind of how I always read it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and it, but yet he had this song called Megadeth, um, and it and he showed us the lyric one day, and I it really hit me like just how really great of a lyric writer Dave was. It was very simple, it was very easy to read, easy to understand, and I'm going, wow, okay, this this guy like writes really cool lyrics, you know, like and not only does he have charisma in how he plays, he's a good storyteller in person he's a good storyteller through his lyrics and absolutely so me and dave and greg 
uh, Hannibal, and um, um, there was a singer named Lore. I don't know his last name. He kind of a big, like Jim Morrison kind of looking guy. Um, bit of a wild card, you know, cool guy, but that, it sounds like a guy that would be named Lore. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, Lore. He looked big, ominous, looming figure, you know, and uh, um, and then we somehow came upon the drummer Dijon Carruthers, and so the five of us would drive over to Glendale. I had a van, so I was the driver de facto. I learned how to drive basically driving around LA, you know, smoking weed, you know, listening to KLOS or KMET, which are the two metal stations. And Dave basically telling me how to get to where we're going. Turn right here. Turn left. <laughs> he here. was your, he was your early eighties Thomas yeah, guide. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> I, I, ways. Learned that I learned how to drive the LA freeway system. Just me and Dave driving around in my van, you know what I mean? <laughs> and him's riding shotgun, essentially being the pilot and me sort of being the, you know, the, the wingman over there, you know, um, but uh, so we rehearsed, I don't know, a handful of times, you know, like maybe two or three times. In fact, I remember there was even a place right off of uh, Sunset um, where we had recorded or we had rehearsed. But I think that was a little later, a few weeks later, Sunset Boulevard, right across from where like that Club Roxbury was by like Crescent Heights, mm. you know, mm -hmm. um, in that that area right in there. But um, so these initial rehearsals, we come back to the apartment and um it was either Greg or Lore. Greg claims it was him, so I'll go with that. He, we come back and we're sitting in, I believe it was downstairs in me and Greg's apartment, underneath Dave's apartment, and we're talking about band name. And um, Greg purportedly says, "I think we should call the band Megadeth." And um, I remember, I think it was Lore. He goes, "Oh." Megadeth, that's heavy, man. <laughs> and uh, I think Bijan was the only guy not in the room because he was often with his girlfriend, Judy. They were off doing things together. So it basically would have been me, Dave, Greg, and Lore sitting in the room, and this conversation came up by the band name. And that was the day we decided to call the band Megadeth. And um, and it's you know it's interesting that, that that, you know, you would think band name Megadeth debut album would be called Megadeth with the song called Megadeth. Well, <laughs> turns out that song, Megadeth, that song comes on album business. three with a different name. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. Yeah, the, the debut album is Killing Is My Business, which we saw on a T-shirt at a at a uh, at a uh, army surplus store well, on Hollywood yeah. and Highland. They had tons of these kill them all shirts, kill them all that God sort them out. And then right next to it, there's this one lone shirt that said Killing Is My Business. And business is good, and we're like, dude, that's that's friggin' awesome. So that's and talk about some serendipity, out. like that that one, that diamond in the rough amongst all the Kill 'Em All shirts. Well, yeah, <laughs> and how funny, you know, Metall then yeah. Metallica's first record comes out, as we see, is Kill 'Em All, and ours is Killing Is Their Business. So all these, you know, not, not much unlike years later when we just finished recording a song called "Go to Hell" that uh -huh. has the, the prayer I laid yeah. me down to sleep, and and literally it's being shipped off to the pressing plant and we turn on the radio one day and hear, you know, inner Sandman Sand with, Man the same with that prayer exact in it. same prayer. And I mean, yeah. what is the chance? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to
And I think a lot of people don't know this, but Go to Hell was also written as the title track for Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey because the original name of the movie was Bill and Ted Go to Hell, right? Yes, because they, they came changed it. You want to write, write, write the, you know, and again, if the we're song. Do it, we want, yeah, yeah if, we, if we're going to write a tune and be involved, we want the title track. So what's the title of the movie? Go to Hell. Okay, we'll write a song called Go to Hell, which of course I think probably the, at least me and Dave reminded us probably maybe more of Alice Cooper Go to Hell. Mm-hmm. Um, you know his his uh, al- album and and song title, but yeah, so yeah, then then as we we get the record done, um, I remember I think Tom Wally who had actually worked at Capitol Records in A&R for us in our yeah. early and years. And kind of a there. legendary A&R guy went on to Warner Brothers. and Yeah, went over to yeah Interscope first, I think, because Interscope put out the Bill & Ted record. Yeah, then ended up over at uh, Warner Brothers. And so, you know, friend of Megadeth for many years. But yeah, him coming down I and mean, hearing the track and loving it. Great. Lyrics are right on. This is awesome. And then they changed the main <laughs> title of the movie. Um, <laughs> people are like, why the heck does go- Megadeth have a song called Go to Hell? Prompted that, you know? <laughs> yeah. But can you imagine Megadeth writing a song called Bogus Journey? <laughs> you know what? That's you know. a good point. I guess you, I suppose you dodged that bullet, actually. Yeah, we're not going to go in and do a rewrite on that. Sorry. So, <laughs> so uh, um, but yeah, so, you know, it's funny that, you know, we're talking about the origins of, of Metallica. So, so listen, I hear the, I'll kind of keep pointing back to your original question. Sure. Yeah, no, this is, go off this on is these. perfect. There's so many yeah. tangents to go off on in this whole thing. So, you know, here we are, you know, uh, you know, we, we form the band, we get the name Megadeth, we see the Kill em All, Kill Each Other Business t-shirt, it's funny, we each, we, we, Metallica and Megadeth, it's just amazing how, you know, we always thought, well, in the record bins, you know, ironically, M-E-G would come in front of M-E-T, <laughs> right? right? So, that was kind of the, uh, and it, you know that just happened that way, but it, yeah, it is ironic that the song Megadeth would actually be retitled "Set the World Afire" and wouldn't appear on a Megadeth album until our third record, "So Far So Good." So what? Um, which we're actually honoring this month in February as mm-hmm. part of our 35 years of Megadeth campaign. Which, which, by the way, when I saw you a couple of weeks ago, you pointed out that I had uh, the wrong shirt on because I had the Killing is My Business shirt on. But I would argue, I thought about this afterwards, uh, you were touring so far, so good, so what, when I bought that shirt. So (laughs) six of one, half a dozen of the other. (laughs) Yeah, look, flip a coin. You got 35 (laughs) years and 15 albums to choose from. Throw a dart, right? Yeah, Yeah, totally. So so Dave and I are sitting there one day, and um, I believe in the mail shows up the new debut Metallic album, Kill 'Em All. And um, Greg was there, and I remember, as best I recall, me, Dave, and Greg sat and listened to that record in pretty much utter silence um, as, you know, that record played. And, of course, for me and Greg, we're kind of like, awesome, man, let's, let's, let's hear this new Metallica album. And again, and again we're, we're fans of Metallica. We're fans of when Dave was in the band on No Life to Weather. And certainly, well, I, th- I think you, you know, said in an interview once, your you know your relationship undoubtedly has always been a little different to Metallica because you were never in Metallica. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, which is a fair you know, of course you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but obviously, sitting there with Dave and he's hearing you know seeing the song titles and the credits and watching you know like Four Horsemen for instance a rewrite of a song he brought in. Uh, hearing the new guitar player playing largely, you know, his lead guitar solos. And, you know, so he, you know, has his certainly has his opinion on it. Um, and, 
you know, that's for Dave to speak to that, of course. But, you know, for me, the first thing I noticed right away is um, cleaner, more refined sound, um, whereas No Life to Leather was very dark and ominous and kind of scary sounding, spooky sounding. You know, Mm -hmm. it it had this ethereal magic to it. That was, you know, largely cleaned up on Kill 'Em All, um, and Kill 'Em All, of course, the tempos were pulled back pretty dramatically on a lot of songs, in particular, uh, Four Horsemen, right? Um, where you know, on, on on Four Horsemen, Lars will play the double bass pattern with the guitar, digga digga, digga digga, digga digga, you know, mm-hmm. and kind of emulate the guitar pattern. on mechanics on the Megadeth version that we played um, was considerably faster tempo, even faster than No Life to Leather. And because of the tempo, Gar Samuelson played more of a shuffle groove. Yeah. Right, it's kind of this, this, and you know, different, a different feel. And of course, he's a, he came from more of a jazz fusion rock background. So, and man, does he, he does he shine on the uh, the remix remastered version? I think came out in two thousand one. Yeah. Um, yeah. and then that twenty, I think it was the twenty fifth anniversary, the surround sound piece cells. Uh, you know, I always admired Gar as a drummer, and you know, Megadeth was my my favorite band all those years, and and yet, uh, it wasn't until those remixes that I really because you know, I'd always read interviews and hear this talk about his jazziness and this and that, and he's the praying mantis, and I never really yeah. got it. And then in those remixes, right. it was like, oh, now I get it. <laughs> well, the thing you, you know? realize, you know, I remember, I remember Al Petrelli said this to me. We were talking one day about Bonzo, and he just brought it up. He was talking about, I think, the way, you know, Dave's riffs and the drumming, you know, are very, a lot of similarities, Dave. Uh, publicly acknowledging his admiration for Led Zeppelin. So, you know, there's these riffs and underneath of it is this straight kind of four, four time, which is how Bonham played over Jimmy Page riffs. It's almost like Bonham's like, well, I don't know what you're playing, but I'm playing four, four, I'm doing this, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how it made, how it made Bonham stand out. Um, And I guess probably the same could be said for Gar. It's kind of like, well, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know what, you know, what, uh, what you're playing on guitar, but I'm going to play this, you know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, so it, it, I think Gar probably had a similar approach of, um, you know, not being a, a metal guy. He heard metal riffs and metal songs with Megadeth in a much different manner. And I, in a large way, it, it created kind of a, a cool difference and kind of a competitive edge for Megadeth. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like you said, I mean, to, to put, you know, a shuffle <laughs> in mechanics, yeah, shuffle in you know, metal, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's amazing that how, how, how well it worked and, you know, and, and to sort of uh, elaborate on my earlier comment about four horsemen versus mechanics. I, I think that's a rare instance uh, because by and large, you know, one of the strongest things about Megadeth 
has always been the lyrics and uh you know that that's been a cut above most metal bands and, and a lot of rock bands and something that stood out to me especially about peace cells is somebody who was into a lot of new wave and had discovered some early punk and kind of you know getting a sense of some of these kind of social issues and and you know i wasn't aware i, I thought of metal as you know bands that i saw on mtv like you know poison and molly crew I, I didn't know that you know these were things that you could talk about in a metal song being played a thousand miles an hour you know so that well, was it was all part of it that was all part of the excitement it, it was me. you know and i think i think that's you know i i i think that you know kill em all set james hetfield in his course as a writer um mm. especially then as you would hear um you know, as you would hear, right when right, I remember when Ride the Lightning came out again. Another moment, me and Dave sitting down to listen to this new Metallica record. Um, these are very analytical moments, and you know, here. Sure, I mean, there's still album. Dave's stuff on that album. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Again, so that was kind of the first thing. What stuff of mine did they use? You know, and yeah. Uh, um, this song know, was called "When Hell Freezes Over," and I wrote it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So he, um, you know, he would certainly look and listen for those those things. But you know, then I, I again, not not you know, being as analytical, just maybe giving a little more of a broad stroke. Listen to it, kind of just as a music fan, go and you know, and and really liking the first, uh, you know, the first I can say probably five Metallica records, pretty much up through side A of the Black Album. I didn't really listen to much of side B of the Black Album. You couldn't help it here side A, because every song was a smash, multi-platinum hit single. Right. Um, and, um, you know, and, and of course, living in L.A., you know, there was always, you know, mandatory Metallica and Kane mm -hmm. and C and, you know, and, and all these things. So, um, And they're one of those bands, I think, even for casual fans, you know, I've never owned a Green Day record. I don't have a single Green Day album. And I've seen them live a couple of times for different reasons. I've been, you know, at a festival or and one time a friend took me to one of their shows. And I realized when the show starts that they can play a two-hour set and I know every song. <laughs> you you, well, exactly. I mean, it's funny. I don't own a Bon Jovi record. And I remember <laughs> right. going down to see Bon Jovi for whatever reason. I can't remember. I think, like, the cult was opening for him or something. And I was a huge cult fan. You know, I yeah, knew. I loved, I loved Electric. Or, I mean, I loved um, the Love album. And mm -hmm. Electric came out. It was all over MTV. So I went down. I wanted to meet Billy Duffy and kind of befriend the band, which I did. And. And this was at the Forum in L.A. when I still lived there. And, and yeah, same thing. I mean, I went out and I watched a little bit of the Bon Jovi show. And you realize, good Lord, for like two hours, this guy, like every song he plays, you know. You yeah, you're know? like, I know yeah. all these songs without trying. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Which is why I'm going to go see the Neil Diamond farewell tour. Because I'm a, it's funny, Neil Diamond <laughs> awesome. was like the first guy I heard on the AM radio when I was literally probably four or five years old living on the farm in Minnesota. Well, you know you what's so funny help. is my, you know, my, my, my first metal record was P-Cells. My first record period um was a 45 my mom bought me of coming to america got a dream they got to share they come into america neil diamond from the jazz dude Theater. neil diamond there's none more metal than neil diamond <laughs> let me tell you i mean he's got diamond right there in his name diamond head <laughs> exactly <laughs> diamonds are exactly rust. so <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, just again, the thread of Metallica, you know, there was yeah. always this again, and, and I, and look, I admittedly, you know, I, I was a true fan of Metallica. I mean, I loved their records. I loved their sound. I, they had a, 
you know, they, they, by pulling their tempos back a little bit, became much more accessible into the mainstream. They weren't so much a, they gave this impression of being a fast band when in fact they really weren't that fast. Right. Um, right. And again, I had this perspective because I knew of the no life to leather demo yeah. And, 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 and you're an architect of the state of the art speed metal band. Well, <laughs> so yeah, you know and, what fast and, sounds and, like. <laughs> well, and it's funny because when we started writing the first Megadeth songs and those were things like, um, uh, you know, the working title of Speak No Evil, which became Looking Down the Cross. Um, uh, and Speak No Evil, uh, I think a lot of fans might not even realize that, but that's, you know, Vic Rattlehead with the. Yes. Exactly. Bolts on his mouth and all, yeah. that song, and then the subsequent uh, "The Skull Beneath the Skin" are basically the description of of the mascot Vic Rattlehead, the Megadeth mascot. And it's it's interesting that um, I think the working title of uh, of uh, "Skull Beneath the Skin" was I think "Self Destruct," and the working title there was another working title I think of. Uh, uh, of came devil's island that was called don't get mad get even you know and it was it was just interesting these working titles that we had yeah of, you know and dave would just say it they go i think we're gonna call that song self-destruct you know and, and sometimes it would be because of somebody you know some girl that was around or you know whatever was happening you know and and you know we hadn't defined that we were going to become you know this band that wrote somewhat politically charged music in fact we didn't we didn't really kind of plant that flag until peace sells but who's buying which isn't even so much a political song it's just a song about sort of get off my back uh you know um you know and i've i've you know dave and i've talked about those kind of discussions too that you know take down the man get off my back that's a universal theme that cuts that can be anything but i was about to say that that song endures i think in large part because that sentiment endures <laughs> you know exactly. through the, all the changing of the guards i mean you could i don't care if you're 15 yeah. years old mad at your parents and the and the math teacher or you're 55 years old pissed off at your boss and the the pension manager and the hr department mm-hmm. you know what i mean it's like it's, it's like there's always someone above you it's like get off my ass and for man, people you know, living in know. america you you could you could feel that way under the clinton administration under the trump administration under reagan under obama like it's yeah it's been it's still applied <laughs> yeah exactly and that's why i think peace cells and symphony of destruction and you know the, the megadeth hits have been songs that although they're again somewhat maybe politically charged on one level they're really just so, you know and dave's really good at just being able to write his emotion out on paper you know sweating bullets same thing you know i think so you know holy wars you know the biggest the biggest songs that in megadeth's career are just pretty much straight off the cuff from emotion to paper, you know, and Absolutely. whereas, whereas, you know, I like listening to Metallica songs. Um, you know, I, I, I remember one time we were in, in Nashville and Dave, I think it was on the risk album. Actually, is either risk album or the cryptic card. I think it was risk, but I remember Dan Huff saying to Dave, like, you know, just, just write your life, you know? And it was interesting that when I heard him say that as a producer, um, that, um, when I started to go back and listen to records, you know, I started to use that as a bit of a reference. Um, and you can hear when people kind of get in touch with that as a writer. And it's mm-hmm. interesting how I think James tapped into that on the Black Album. I was going to say, uh, I think it took him until Dyer's Eve and then and then the whole Black Album to really get there. Whereas if to you really to, get there, 
yep, to exactly. wake up, wake up dead. He actually says the girl's name in the song. <laughs> <laughs> that's how that's how real that is. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing with Dave. It's like Dave really wears his emotion on his sleeve. Yeah, that you know? is and, personal. And and, 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 and yeah, and, and most of the time people pick up on the anger that Dave would express. But Dave is a very expressive person. He's an expressive, very emotional writer. And, you know, the truth of it is when you write emotion, that's what connects with people. I mean, yeah. You know, in my darkest hour, which was written in a deep moment of sadness because it was, uh, we'd gotten the call from Maria Ferraro, um, who's uh, an industry uh, metal Maria publicist, but she's yeah, a, a, Maria, a but, future, but future she, guest on this show. Yeah. Okay. Good. 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 So she can speak to this. So, mm-hmm. but she called one morning and uh, delivered the news to Dave on the telephone that Cliff Burton had been killed in a bus crash um, the night before. And Dave sat down and and pretty much in one fell swoop wrote, um, you know, in my darkest hour. Um, and and you know, so it's interesting that a song written in a deep emotion like that, we get fans who come to us and go, "I was thinking about ending my life. I was in a terrible funk, and then I heard in my darkest hour, and it pulled me out of it and gave me hope. And and I've had a wonderful life since. And you know, <laughs> you go, wait a minute." That song was written in a very deep, deep depressed state. <laughs> right. Somehow it gave a fan, a, a, a listener, it gave them hope. So it's, you know, again, I think when you write about your life and you write pure, true, real emotion, that connects with people. Yeah, and I think if you're someone like a Dave Mustaine who feels deeply, you're going to you're going to be wounded deeply. You're going to you're going to be angry. It, you know, it, all those emotions are going to be extreme. Mm-hmm. So we might hear that extreme angry side. And I think that that also is, is intrinsically linked to a deeply compassionate side or a deeply, you know what I mean? Like that there are these, all those emotions are just. And and as I would be with Dave and I would kind of go, geez, man, you know, that you had, you know, these, this, this short period of time in Metallica's earliest years that gave you and Megadeth a huge launch pad. Um, and you know, Dave's emotion about that. There was as much as a lot of fans celebrated, you know, well, you see, you see the, the things on Facebook, you know, Mustaine wrote them all, <laughs> you know, you see these <laughs> yeah. things now, yeah. which are celebratory for Dave's contributions to Metallica. You know, I think there was also a part of, um, you know, some fans related to, Dave getting sort of shut out, dismissed, and then the band yes. goes on to this huge success. I think there's a part of a lot of people that related to, you know, almost looking at Metallica as they became the man. You know what I mean? They became of course. Sort of and, and I giant. was, uh, and you know, I had the opportunity to to say this to Dave once. Uh, you know, many gosh, I guess ten years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, crazy how fast time goes. But um, yeah, I was the, uh, you know, there was one lunch table and my high school in Southport, Indiana that had all the weirdos at it. And that was, you know, whether it was theater geeks or, uh, you know, goth rockers and the, the handful of us metalheads and skaters and punks. And um, amongst those metalheads, I was the Megadeth guy. And I, mm. and I, and I loved Metallica, but there was definitely a period of a couple years, especially in high school when you're uber passionate. Um, you know, there was something I celebrated about the underdog of Megadeth in the Metallica Megadeth rivalry at the time. <laughs> you know, I mean, it well, was, 
you identified with that more. It was more like it was yeah. like Rocky, you know, versus in Apollo a lot Creed. of ways, Megadeth, you know, because of the Dave Mustaine, Megadeth, and Metallica narrative, that whole story. There's something that people championed about by a large, you know, music notwithstanding. The story of of Megadeth was one that became people. They did. They championed us because we were the under, underdog, you know, and. um you know, it was, uh, I think probably for us other members of the band, um, you know, we liked, you know, I remember Marty Friedman, you know, he just, you know, in the nineties when he was in, in Megadeth, we were, you know, he would say, he goes, geez, those guys, they just don't do anything wrong. They just make all the right moves. You know, mm -hmm. they're like the Apple computer of metal, you know, the, they just, the Midas they touch. Did, yeah. every new, yeah. They, every new album was just like, gosh, it's like, pfft. They just, it's like they had the crystal ball, you know? And, and in fact, I remember Marty and I, we were in Europe on the, uh, on a long tour. I think, um, it was probably toward the end of the rust in peace tour. I think it was probably around March, 1991. We've been on the road a lot. I've watched a lot of um, YouTube videos from that European tour. And I, let me, let me just, in case no one's told you this recently, you guys were on fucking fire. <laughs> It was, because, those shows are just, man, just, I mean, out of, well, and, and talk about Nick Menza too. And it's like, and some of the beautiful yeah. mistakes, sometimes he's playing way too fast, um, yeah. but it's just cooking, man. It's just, you know, it's amazing. Well, I forget if it was, if it was that like 91 or maybe it would have been even 92 or 93 or so, but there was a period we'd been touring a lot. We were you know burned out. And I remember watching on the tour bus, um, the year and a half in the life of Metallica video, mm. um, that just happened to be a copy on the bus and we sat and we watched it and, you know, everything from Kirk Hammett going out to the guitar store to, you know, whatever they were doing short of flying on the private jet, of course, um, you know, <laughs> it was we, all relatable except for that. Like, yeah. Marty and I were just like, our lives are exactly identical. I mean, yeah. Metallica and Megadeth are the same. We think the same, we say the same things. We do the same things. We, you know, um, you know, obviously, again, the, the, the financial differences of their, you know, windfall and, you know, the, the things that they, you know, the heights that that took them to. But but just the just, the, you know, before the success probably sweeped, swept Metallica to this place where I mean, I always thought it thought, you know, when you make that much money and become that successful from just kind of playing blue collar heavy metal, how can you then go back and just play blue collar heavy metal because you're now richer than some countries, you know what I mean? And I thought the same thing with ACDC, you know what I mean? It's like, here's these guys, just these kind of jeans and t-shirt, you know, simpletons playing sort of three chord blues, rock and roll. And then you just get so incredibly wealthy. The things that, that money allows you to do and the people that come into your world and your life and, around you at that level um, are so different than just the everyday fans that you played to in your early days that it's almost like, how do you stand in front of that audience and write songs they can relate to? Because your life doesn't, it's not at all like your audience's life anymore, you know? So, and I think in some instances like a Metallica, they're able to push boundaries in other realms, you know, whether it's, right. it's sort of, you know, uh, when Alex Skolnick was on the podcast, he, he, he has a great line, and he's used it before. That uh, Lars is the bridge from Motorhead to MoMA, <laughs> you know, the Museum of Modern Art, and uh, <laughs> and then you have the other end of the spectrum, 
you know, where you become Axl Rose at a certain point where he's surrounded by these like, you know, psychics and, <laughs> you know, like, a, you know, a whole new band. Yeah, and, you know. ex- exactly. Yes. You know, and it's and, and I think, you know, look, it's sometimes when it's your, you know, I think probably the one thing with Metallica, since we're on a Metallica podcast, mm-hmm. is uh, there was a sort of grounded real, you know, roots level um, mindset in the band that I think at least kept them on track for a lot of years, a lot of successes, you know. Um, and, you know, I think probably by load, reload, you know, they I know because we went through it with risk, you know, if some success is good, more must be better, you know. Um, <laughs> In the 90s, everybody was kind of trying to figure out how to just survive the 90s if you were a thrash metal band. And so we were all searching for, is you know, do we have to placate to MTV? Do we have to placate to, you know, play you know play to the radio market? Like, what I remember when, tal- when you and Jason Newstead both cut your hair and it was like, man, the bass player's leading the charge yeah. here. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I remember having conversations with my friends when it would be like, you know, Metallica cut their hair, and I would go, well, we cut our hair. Right, exactly. <laughs> you, know, right. Like, <laughs> you have the same haircut they do. Why do they have to stay frozen in time? You didn't. Well, yeah, and I think I think there was a – you know, it's funny. I remember when Jason cut his hair. It looked awesome. He played, like, an award show or something, and he looked great, and he had this real cool edge. And, you know, again, I think that was part of Metallica just being ahead of the curve. I mean, he cut his hair before Tommy Lee and mm-hmm. – you know, before Godsmack came in and, you know, kind of the short hair movement of Disturbed, Godsmack and kind of that next wave of, of music that came in. I mean, I cut my hair because I moved to Arizona and the water out here sucks and my hair looked like crap. <laughs> I cut my hair, you know. <laughs> my problem is I didn't have earrings and tattoos and, you know, I, I didn't have the dark sleeves of tattoos. So I just look like a I look like a 15 year old kid from the farm in Minnesota. You know? so. <laughs> So great. I, uh, you know, I always wanted to have long hair, so I grew it back. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, again, Metallica just was always, I mean, they were just on the pulse, you know, of, of everything. And, you know, again, let's, uh, I, none of us, I, I remember when we did the big four shows, you know, and I remember there was a quote, I think it was from Scott Ian, and he said, you know, it's kind of like Megadeth, Metallica, Slayer, and Anthrax. It's kind of like we're four brothers. But after college, one of them went off and became Microsoft, you know, and that's <laughs> I, I like that because it's, yeah, you know, we came back together for the family reunion in 2010, mm-hmm. 2012, and we did the big four. And, you know, the thing that I think the kind of maybe the poetic justice of of the, of the big four story is that, you know, I don't think of any I can't think of any other genre where the four sort of founding fathers of it, if you will, are still alive, still active, still working, still productively touring, making new records mm-hmm. and, you know, making some musical contributions. And, and making good records that were well received by their fans. Yeah, you know, it, it, exactly. It was a, it was a perfect and, you moment. Know, even though yeah. look, Gar Samuels is not with us, Jeff Hanneman's not with us anymore. Obviously Cliff Burton's not with us. So, um, and you know, anthrax you know except for dan spitz is pretty much intact still so i mean again there have been some you know changes but for the most part the the lineups are are you know slamming as good as ever um and the productivity is top notch still and and four bands from the same genre i mean you know grunge 
you know, kind of had Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, and Nirvana. And Nirvana is not even around anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about, you know, Southern rock, there was Skinner, Almond Brothers, you know, I don't know, maybe 38 Special, you know what I mean? But even then, they, they, they came from very, kind of tried to think of genres, even the jazz genre. I, I think of these genres of music. And, you know, again, Jaco Pistorius, one of the real, you know, thrust of the fusion genre you know, mm-hmm. gone. I mean, by and large, that, that ended. Same with, same with the psychedelic era. I mean, Hendrix is gone. A lot of those guys, they're just, they're not with us anymore. The Jefferson Airplane's gone. So, you know, the big four of thrash metal were a, were a genre that is not only survived, but thriving. And the, the four founding fathers, the pillars of it um, that built the house, were, were still here. And some incredible and such a such a blessing so much to talk about but a couple things i, w- I want to get to um you know so you, you mentioned hearing uh, no life to leather for the first time and of course uh that that fateful moment of of getting kill them all and sitting down and listening to it when did you first meet the band because obviously uh you know as the longest running other person in megadeth <laughs> for all these years mm-hmm. and co-founder mm-hmm. and this and that uh you know you've certainly been around and and developed your own relationship with the guys. How did that, when and where did that begin? You know, I first met them. Of course, I heard a lot about them <laughs> through Dave, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and even and even Metal Maria, as we called her, Maria Ferraro. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, she was, it's funny, she flew out, um, as did a couple of other girls who I guess had seen Metallica play at, uh, when Dave was in the band, when they moved from San Francisco out to, out to uh, the East Coast. To sign their deal with Johnny Z Megaforce Records, and there were some uh, you know fans who saw that, and they it's kind of like there was this there was this transcontinental you know route between New York and L.A. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And the mm-hmm. and the fans would kind of come back and forth and fly back and forth, and it was it was all kind of big league cool stuff, you know. But I remember you know Maria, she was a real friend to Dave, and you know would. You know, so she kind of had some inside information once in a while on Metallica, what they're doing, and da da da, and and, and so it was, you know, um, there was always that kind of information around. And I think I met James. Well, I know for sure I met James and Lars on the sidewalk outside of the Troubadour. Um, Dave and I would go out, and, and Greg Hannibal, we'd go out to clubs. Uh, you know, if, it's not nightly, but once or twice a week, often on the weekends. Um, you know, the Troubadour was kind of the cooler uh, metal club. Um, there was, of course, you know, the whiskey and the Starwood was closed by the time I got there. There was the Roxy, uh, the Rainbow, of course, the Bar and Grill was, was the hot spot. That was the hang, you know, that was where the party and all that happened. But the Troubadour was kind of the cooler club where metal bands, I remember the guys from Great White were always hanging out there. Mark Kendall would always be seated at the bar. Um, and uh, it was just seemed to be the spot. So one night we're down there and, and James and Lars are there. So I meet James and Lars. James, very kind of quiet, um, didn't say much. Lars seemed very energetic. I remember, you know, he'd stand there with his, you know, on the side of the curb and his leg kind of hyper moving. <laughs> he was just, he had, you could tell <laughs> yeah. he had a lot of energy. And, yeah. But they were both very cool to me. I mean, I think at this point um, I could tell definitely Dave, uh, People love Dave. I mean, he, he is, as, as I understand it, he 
James was the lead singer of Metallica, but Dave did all the talking in between songs. Yeah. It, it, I mean, was... uh, R- Rob Flynn, who was someone who, you know, became a fan of Metallica when Dave was still in the band, he said that, uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways, he was the front man. He was, and, exactly. And, 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 and when and... people heard he was out of the band, they were like, wait, but that's the main guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and it's funny because I, it wasn't until I remember seeing... I remember going out to see Metallica then a few months later after Kill 'em All had come out. They'd come around on the Raven Metallica, the Kill 'em One for All. Kill 'em All for One, uh, yeah. Kill 'em All for One, yeah, exactly. On that tour. And they played at the Country Club out in Reseda, which is a, a bigger hall, you know, maybe, I don't know, you know, whatever, 1,500, 2,000 seat venue. They played there, and, um, you know, they were. You know, be, they were this new band, essentially, you know, with James being both the singer and the front man and obviously Kirk Hammett, their new lead guitar player. But again, by and large, that was really the main introduction of the band to the world at right. large. I mean, of course, you know, um, so, you know, it was interesting to see that. And then I remember what going down to see Metallica at the Palladium on the I guess it was the Wasp Metallica Armored Saint tour. Wow. And yeah. Ride the Lightning had just come out, and I remember the band hit the stage. They were just ferocious, man. They, you know, James had his shirt off. He was tan. He was trim. He looked great, and I mean, he just had that lion's mane of hair. And and he came out, and they they opened the show with Fight Fire with you know, or you know, Fight Fire with Fire, and and was just I was like, holy smokes, what happened to this guy? I mean, this guy just immediately transformed to like godlike status as a as a front man um and you know the band just killing it you know and you know as the middle band clearly overall just completely stole the show um and was just so cool to see and i mean that that i think right you know on the right lighting tour that was where james had had enough experience and he was no longer you know even though he didn't talk a lot between songs um he was, uh, you know, he, he, he was a front man and you couldn't take your eyes off him. I mean, he, you, he was a very magnetic, very charismatic, uh, lead singer, guitar player. Um, and you know, um, really carried a big thrust of Metallica on stage. I mean, it was just really, and then I remember, you know, then a year later or so Dave and I were out in New York, um, being courted by, uh, Michael Alago mm-hmm. from Electra Records, who mm-hmm. had signed signed Metallica to Electra, and we had and, and Michael the, was uh, on the podcast a few episodes ago. Oh, good. Yes, yeah, so you've heard yeah. your listeners have heard his story. So yeah, yeah. he was uh, we P cells was done recorded. We were flying out to meet a new manager, um, Keith Rawls from Megadeth. Um, we were meeting our agent Andy Summers, I believe, out there. Uh, meeting Michael Alago and. And I think it was on that trip, actually, that Dave and I went to um, went to uh, Wiley's Ribs, Wiley's Barbecue Ribs across from the UN. And we sat there and that's when Dave came up with the idea for the P-Cells album cover. Oh, <laughs> was wow. On that trip. Wow. Um, <laughs> and Michael Lago had taken me and Dave. Metallica was actually in town supporting uh, Ozzy on the Master of Puppets tour. Yeah. And took wow. us across uh, the, uh, from New York over to New, uh, Rutherford, New Jersey, to the, the arena there and watched him play. And I remember, you know, again, just seeing, oh, my gosh, this band from from the Kill 'Em All for One tour to the Ride the Lightning tour at the Palladium to now, you know, packing this arena with Ozzy full of people and and 
you know, the only thing I remember James really saying is he took a swig of beer and he said I almost puked in my mouth, and that was about all he said. <laughs> <laughs> Which of course everybody loved. I mean, at this point, yeah. everybody was hanging on every word and note that this band played. I mean, it was just, you know, Metallica are truly a phenomenon. I mean, they are an unexplained success. Their, their songs are great. The band was great. They did all the right moves. They had great management. I mean, you know, Lars, it's almost like you looked at the back of every great you know, rock album like Def Leppard and he just cherry picked their manager, their mm-hmm. accountant, their agent. And he just, I mean, Lars, he, he knew what he wanted. He, he, you know, he probably was like the ultimate fan turned artist slash rock star. And, yes. and I mean, you know, he, he, you know, he got to live the dream, you know, and it was just so cool to see because he was a pretty easy going, easy flowing, happy guy. And, and just, uh, you know, it was just great to see what they did from, for, for, for metal. And I mean, look, Metallica cut such a wide swath that it re- you know, made it possible for all the rest of us to follow after, you mm-hmm. know, even though we all, we all have our own mark and our own niche and we all did our own thing. What is it? The, 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 the big wave lifts all ships, right? Yeah, exactly. All boats rise, man. You know what I mean? So they, they, we are all forever indebted to Metallica for them doing that. So I, I had two more quick things for you as we're talking about 35 years of Megadeth and all this history with Metallica and how they're intertwined and all that. You mentioned the Metallica Wasp Armored Saint tour. Uh, literally the day before yesterday as we're recording this, I posted on the Speak and Destroy Instagram a flyer from that tour, which was February 6th, 1985. <laughs> so just okay. the anniversary of that show. And uh, it was when the tour came to First Avenue in Minnesota, your home state. Wow. So, wow. Serendipity right there. Who was on the bill? Who was Uh, on the bill? Metallica, Wasp, and Armored Saint. Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. Uh, February 685 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And so I want to ask you, I just, I don't remember, it seemed like it was semi-recently that I had watched the uh, Am I Evil from Bulgaria uh, for the first time in a long time since then, probably, uh, the one that's Mm -hmm. on the Big Four DVD. And there's a really cool moment uh, where... Everybody, you know, all the guys from the other bands are leaving the stage after the song. And I noticed that Lars makes it a point to run over and catch you specifically mm-hmm. to talk to you first, you know, quick to say thanks or bye or hi. And, and, you know, for me as a fan and as a friend of yours, and it's just one of, you know, little goosebumps like, ah, oh, I just love that <laughs> Lars paying special attention to David. It's so cool. You know, I don't know. You know what? Lars has been nothing but an absolute gentleman and a, and just a, a, a cool guy to me, you know, um, you know, he and I years ago, we'd run into each other at just various places. And, you know, back when I was still, you know, drinking and drugging and partying and, you know, and, and doing all that. And it's like, we, uh, in fact, I think the first time I ever had Jägermeister was backstage at the, oh, on the, uh, injustice for all tour. Um, Jägermeister owes Metallica a lot of money. <laughs> oh, dude! I mean, I remember they had they had some Jägermeister, and I, I remember the show. I come back, and right away he's like, "Hey, where's Dave?" And I said, oh, "He's over at the apartment." And then we actually went over to the band apartment and hung out, me and Lars and Dave, and went and hung out, uh, and, and and then uh, ended up going over to the band hotel after that and hanging out. So it was just kind of you know, Dave, you know, Lars. Lars has always admired Dave. He's always, I think, had a big admiration for Dave's abilities, his skills, his talents. He, uh, you know, has always taken a liking to him. Um, and, you know, probably a part of him that, I mean, I can't put words in his mouth, I, you know, but it's, it's, he, he obviously, 
you know, in, enjoys, you know, you know, being around Dave and catching up with him, you know, yeah. and, and, you can, you and, can, you can see it when they're together. You can see you it. Know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and had things gone a different way, Hey, you know, maybe they'd still be on stage together, but you know, life is what it is. And it, it's, it, life just goes the way it goes and, you know, we all move on. But, but yeah, he is, um, you know, he, I, I remember being backstage and he, and he, they pull out some Jagermeister and, and he said, here, try this. And I mean, I just, I hated it then. I never grew a taste for it. And then once I ever quit drinking alcohol, it's like, it's like that stuff is disgusting, you know, but, uh, um, but yeah, that was the first, uh, you know, again, Metallica being the first on many things, including Jagermeister. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, you know, he's, he's really been, you know, just always just been a, you know, great. And I think probably over the years, you know, getting to know James a little bit, he was probably a little bit, a little bit more kind of reserved, harder to get to know. I mean, Kirk, same thing, very, uh, you know, at, you know, open and, and, um, and, um, you know, the bass players over the years, I mean, they didn't really know Cliff too much that night in New Jersey on the, when they opened Prozzi. That was the last time I spoke with him, had kind of a little, you know, chat about music and songwriting a little bit, kind of his contributions on the Master of Puppets record. Um, and then, um, you know, obviously I do Jason Newstead fairly well from when Flotsam would open for us when, we, when Megadeth mm-hmm. would come through Phoenix. And Robert Trujillo, of course, he's the good friend to all of us. I mean, he's mm-hmm. had so many. I mean, he was in he was in suicidal tendencies playing before Megadeth when Megadeth was on the bill with Metallica in '93, doing the Nowhere Else to Roam, Far Eastern European dates that they invited us to play on um, stadium shows. So I mean, and then Robert, of course, being an Aussie, and I mean, just you know, such a cool guy and. In fact, it's funny when we walked in to the jam room to rehearse "Semi Evil" in Bulgaria in Sofia. Um, as soon as you know, the four guy, metallic guys were there. They're waiting for the rest of us to show up to come in and plug in, and just kind of jam, run through the tune a couple of times. As soon as I walk in, Robert looks at me and goes, "Junior, here, take it. You do it." And he hands me the bass. <laughs> That's like, so cool. Here, you play this. You know, and so it was, it yeah. was cool. I mean, kind of sit there and play with James, Lars, and and Kirk. Um, you know, the Dave plugs in and Scott and Chris Broderick and everybody plugs in and we're all kind of a big family jamming along, you know, the, the, we are the world of metal. <laughs> even, um, even better, even was, better than was, hearing aid. <laughs> it was fun to just sit and jam, you know, j- you know, kind of feel how James, where James feels the, the, the pocket and, yeah. you know, Lars again, Lars is, you know, Lars was always kind of making fun, self-deprecating humor, you know, like, Oh God, I've, you know. I'm the worst drummer here. Every drummer here is better than me, you know, and just again, but, and he would say that, you know, to just kind of keep a light humor about it and just, you mm-hmm. know, paying homage to Dave Lombardo and Sean and Charlie Benante and just saying, man, I'm in a room full of great drummers. You know, here's Jalar's the headliner. Right. Know, paying, and paying, that's what's paying, cool about it. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. So like, Hey, I'm in a room full of kick-ass killer drummers. Like, you know, and, and, you know, as big as Lars, popular as Lars got, he never, you know, he never, it gets kind of, he, he kind of always respected his place in, in, in the whole scheme of it, you know? And, and it's a way to kind of welcome people into the room that, that could otherwise be intimidating, you know, it kind of uses yeah, the tension a little bit. Big, yeah. I think that's, that's exactly cool. it. In fact, even when we, before we even did the show, they called a band dinner the night before we played in the first big four show in Poland. And, 
And, and it just goes to show their, you know, their experience, uh, which is they said, look, we want a band me- meeting, no, a band dinner, rather, no managers, no handlers, no security, nothing. And there was uh, a restaurant in the side streets of wherever we were, Warsaw, Poland, and, and Robert Trujillo was the greeter at the door. And he let us in sort of this. Imagine being a metal fan that. Imagine being a metal fan that walks yeah. into that restaurant that night. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> By accident. And, and, you know, James, Lars, and Kirk were there greeting everybody as we came in. And it was just, you know, it was so cool. And, and they even, you know, Lars even said, he goes, you know, usually, you, you know, you like you do the tour. And at the end of it, you, you realize, oh, my God, we, we know now we finally meet and have a meal or we hang out for a minute. He said, you know, let's just do this right up front. So we get to know everybody, break bread. And I think they do that a lot on tours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they and again, that just goes to show sort of this, you know, experience that Metallica has had in their career. And, and you know, again, if, if 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 you allow yourself to and keep an open mind, you can learn a lot. And I definitely learned a lot from them over the years. Indeed, indeed. Uh, so uh, lastly, before I let you go, while on the Lars topic, I know that he's spoken and I think he wrote liner notes even for Peace Cells about his love for that record. Um, mm-hmm. there's a great moment in that big four documentary where he's, he's telling Dave about, uh, one of his kids, I think miles, uh, how he would always request to listen to Megadeth for a, a certain period right, of the right. trips to school. And I yeah. believe you could correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe, uh, I feel like I saw something with Lars once where he went to a Megadeth show and he specifically requested hook and mouth. Was that the song? He did, and it's. I, I believe you're right. I what the one I, the most recent one I remember is after I guess it was probably later in 2010 when we did American Carnage, uh, Slayer, Megadeth, or maybe it was even Jagermeister where it was Slayer, Megadeth, Anthrax. We mm-hmm. we we played um, at the Cow Palace in San Francisco, and Cow James Palace. and Lars, came, yeah. James and Lars came down, and Lars had requested that we play My Last Words. Oh wow, that's my favorite song and, and, from P Cells, and that's yeah, a that's a and, deep cut. And I remember, you know, working on that. David brought it up, said, "Hey, Lars loves that song. Maybe just you know, to kind of you know to throw one to him. Maybe maybe we should play it tonight." So I remember, you know, Chris Broderick and uh, Sean Drover in there learning it. And Sean knew all the Megadeth songs, right? A fan, right? I you know I had stayed up on all the material. One of my favorite bass lines of Megadeth uh, catalog. So I I love playing that tune. And I remember we played it. We we just kind of threw it out there that night. And James and Lars were standing over on stage right over in me and Dave's guitar world over there. And, you know, watching the, you know, and it, and I just thought, of that, God, you know, I remember all these years ago coming up here to play at San Francisco at the Stone in our early clubs. And James would come out and Lars would come out and they'd want to see what's going on. And, you know, it, it's, um, you know, there was, you know, there was, you know, maybe not hostility in the air, but it wasn't. You know, it, there wasn't a, a friendliness, you know, and now here we are all these years later, locking arms, making DVDs together and, and celebrating our successes together rather than being competitors. And it was just a that was really a kind of a cool highlight moment. So cool and a perfect moment to end on, my friend. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yes, and and, awesome. uh, and you're you're going to have to be the first part, too. I'm going to have to have you on again. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and then, uh, and we'll and we'll do the other podcast, which is uh, yeah, exactly. complete, completely cool. different awesome, themes. So. Sounds sounds good. And you know what? We'll, we'll probably 
Yeah, that that sounds good, and maybe we'll even have you jump in on some radio combat. Oh, I would love to. Some oh, I would too. love to. Any, yeah. Anytime you need cool. a uh, a combat records Megadeth nerd to <laughs> refresh your memory totally. on any facts. Oh, perfect, perfect, <laughs> perfect. All right, thanks, Ryan. David Elfson, one of my favorite people on planet Earth. That other podcast that I mentioned is called No Prize from God. It features conversations with creative people about belief unbelief and everything between i look forward to having david on that pretty soon and if you're interested in those big sort of philosophical conversations and the weird and trippy things people believe about life death the afterlife and what it all means creative people most of them musicians authors speakers and so forth give that podcast a listen guests have included max cavalera from sepultura and soulfly dwid hellion from integrity karen crisis from gospel of the witches Tim McTagg from Under Oath, Ryan Clark from Demon Hunter, and Satir Wongraven from Satyricon, to name but a few. Do me a favor, pop into the iTunes store or wherever you consume your podcasts, and leave Speak and Destroy, and while you're at it, no price from God, a five-star rating and a nice little review. If you're a regular listener to podcasts, you know that people are always asking you to do that, and it's with good reason. The more five-star ratings, the more reviews, the higher the visibility, and the more likely people are to discover your favorite podcasts. If you check out Speak and Destroy on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, you will find much more than just concept blogs for the new episodes. We've been posting cool little historical facts, pictures, videos, all sorts of stuff related, of course, to Metallica. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. And to repeat the line that I have borrowed from Dave Mustaine and used as a loving homage to Megadeth, and once plugged into an entire 18-episode series on MTV... You guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Dale.